Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. An essential part of healing the world is for people to find the work and relationships and ways of living that allow them to live out their greatest good. That is what Albert Belge illuminates for us in his latest book, Living the Deepest Truth You Know. Drawing on deep inner resources and availing himself of external supports and mentors, Al recounts the times his decisions were guided by unexpected and surprising truth and wisdom, available to all but often neglected. Al retired from work as a psychologist recently, but he continues to facilitate retreats, lead meditation sessions, and write, including poetry and books. He has been influenced by Parker Palmer and the Circles of Trust, guided by the Center for Courage and Renewal. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. Check the northernspiritradio.org website for a longer, uncut version of this interview. Albert Belge joins us via Zoom from the Fox Valley area of Wisconsin. Al, it's so wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've gotten to know you a bit over this past year. Uh, Fortunately, we have a common friend, Kat Griffith. She's an amazing writer, and she's an amazingly deep spiritual person. Was she the first person you met with respect to the Winnebago Worship Group? Pretty much so, yes. I showed up on a snowy November morning several years ago, and she was leading the meeting, clerking the meeting very kindly shifted the topic to something that a newbie could uh, relate to. And we discussed experiences of awe that we had had. It was a lovely introduction to Quakers and a very profound introduction for me in particular. I think it was a lovely beginning to my Quaker journeys. You know, I want to dive very much into the content of your book, Living the Deepest Truth You Know. And I am very aware that calling the thing within the deepest truth, as opposed to the Quaker, you know, saying there's that of God in everyone, or go to your higher power, things that you address actually in the book. I think deepest truth is a very good neutral term, a term that can be widely accepted from many different perspectives. People can hear it in their own inner knowing. Did you have to search long to get to the phrase deeper truth as opposed to God, as opposed to spirit, as opposed to whatever? Well, and not really. And, you know, I do love that phrase because I think it's not only a sort of a generic term, but it's an experiential one as well. We have experiences of truth, of yes, this is the way things are, or this is what's here for me in particular in this moment. But I think the particular phrasing of that came in actually a kind of a a lovely way. My wife and I were sitting on the couch in our living room and discussing an issue that she was dealing with at work. She's a physician. At the time, I was a practicing psychologist and I'm retired now, but she was discussing some you know, personal relationship issues related to other people in her medical practice and some other things that were going on. And Really, it's one of those naughty situations that doesn't have a sort of rational, logical solution to it. 
And at some point in the discussion, without thinking too much about it, I said, well, uh, maybe you should just try to, you know, find the deepest truth you know and let everything else fall in place around it. And she went, oh, wait a minute, write that down. <laughs> and, you know, like that was the only time in my life that she has ever said you know, that. So, of course, I wrote it down and I, I, I even put it on a sticky note on our refrigerator for a while. And it basically turned into this book, really, because, first of all, it helped her deal with her situation. And, you know, I don't really say this in the book, but where she went with that particular piece of insight in her particular situation was to simply step away from the situation and realize there was nothing that she could actively do to resolve the interpersonal difficulties going on in her practice. And so her deepest truth was to keep her head down and, and stick with her work and support the people in her practice and be a good friend and so on and go forward like that. In my case, after I reflected on that particular saying, find the deepest truth you know and let everything else fall in place around it. I realized that that was something that I had been doing pretty much my whole life from my very early 20s and, you know, some incidences earlier than that. But when I was trying to finish college and was trying to make my way in the world, I was really following a deeper truth, a deeper wisdom, a, a deeper insight than just the sort of logical, rational, well, you can make more money doing this than doing that, or here's something that would be exciting, or here's something that could get you, you know, uh, make you well-regarded and so on. And I managed to live most of my life following that deep inner wisdom, the deepest truth that I know in making decisions about where to live, about my career, about people to be involved with as friends and as life partner, my life partner, my, my wife. I feel like it's such an extraordinary gift that we're given. And I don't think most people realize quite how profound and deep that gift of our inner wisdom is and the benefits that might come of following it. You refer to inner wisdom, the deepest truth. And certainly, sometimes when we look within, we find some surprising things that way, some things that maybe we've known were there, but all of a sudden they stand out in special detail. I'm sure a lot of people don't want to trust their inner wisdom because I think people also have a potential for going with, you know, when you say go with your gut, well, my gut may be racism, my gut may be selfishness. And I think many people fear the inner demon as well as inner wisdom. You don't talk much about that side of it. Is that because there's no inner demon in Al Belges, inner beings? <laughs> Far from it. You know, from a Quaker perspective, I mean, the whole question of discernment around these sort of insights and leadings is extremely important. And I think many of the leadings or guidance or you know, moments of inner wisdom that I've received have felt quite profoundly clear and simple and straightforward. And it's been easy to sort of see that they are not 
simply a sort of emotional attachment to something or a logical thing that I figured out that's the right thing to do or that that is somehow the uh, morally right thing to do in, in a given situation. None of those things really are the essence of inner wisdom. Inner wisdom has a very distinctive sort of life of its own. And if there is a single characteristic that I find makes it credible, it is that it is surprising. It is not what you expect. It is not, you know, business as usual. It is something that leads you in a direction that you really didn't see coming. I have, and I talk about this in the book, I've moved across country on nothing more than the deep inner knowing that, you know, I, I think I need to move to Kansas City. I think I need to move to Atlanta. I think it's time to let go of this particular part of my career and move from Atlanta to Chicago. I think it's time to start graduate school in my mid-30s and pursue a career as a psychologist. You know, I, I mean, there have been profound life changes that have come with a deep sense of persuasiveness. And in many cases, there's a certain kind of set of experiences I've had where I was trying to like figure out what to do. And they are so distinct in my experience and in my awareness. And they're so different than the experience of being led, of being guided, which is usually just very simple and just arises as a kind of like, well, yes, that feels like the right thing to do. And I'm not exactly sure why I've never even been to Kansas City or read much about it or so on. And, you know, I sort of reassured myself by reading up on Kansas City and seeing that it was kind of an interesting city. I think it must have been the song. I'm going to Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come. That's what it was. <laughs> That's what it was. That must have been. They it. got some crazy little ladies there. And Okay, that was it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been it. I was looking for the crazy little women. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I, it's interesting. You know, I, I think one thing that allows my experience of inner wisdom to arise is when I have a genuine need for something, you know, the, the like Kansas City just didn't sort of pop into my head. I, I knew prior to that, that it was time for me to move. This was the year after I had graduated from college. I spent that year in Milwaukee because my best friend lived in Milwaukee, my friend Steve, who I'd known since seventh grade, and we played soccer together and, you know, we're amateur astronomers together looking at the stars. And he lived in Milwaukee. And so I didn't know where else to go. So I, I just went and stayed. I found an apartment about a block away from him. And that was not necessarily an inner wisdom kind of guidance. That was just like, well, I'm not sure what else to do. And, you know, I'll be able to hang out with him occasionally. And that, that seems like a good idea. But after about a year of that and sort of going through some really profound challenges about what I was to do with myself, which largely were in the line of like, well, I think I need to be a writer. I think I need to start considering myself a writer and acting like a writer and discovering what's going on inside me. And being a poet was a way to do that. And I think that was in some ways a very profound leading. And it led me into a lot of confrontations with my own sense of like, well, I have, I have this nice college degree. I should be successful. I should be making a lot of money or more, at least more money than I was. 
you know, I was painting houses. I was working in a factory, uh, slightly more than minimum wage. Shouldn't I be more successful? Shouldn't I be on some kind of career path? And over and over again, I had these opportunities that I set to the side because it was clear to me that I needed to write and I needed to keep my mornings free in order to write because that was my best time. It was kind of the learning process about my inner wisdom. It was like, okay, here's a direction for you, writing, and here's all the challenges you face inwardly in order to stick with it. Are you able? I'm personifying my inner wisdom here. My inner wisdom is asking me, so let's just see. Just, let's just see how sincere you are about following this. Let's see if you'll make some decisions, some life decisions to follow this inner wisdom instead of just being distracted by whatever, by money or, you know, what seems to be like what you should be doing or whatever. And I think one of the things that my inner wisdom found was that I was kind of remarkably willing to follow that and to let everything else fall in place around it. And in doing so, my inner wisdom kept opening up more and more to me and giving me more and more guidance that led me through my life. The book, Living the Deepest Truth You Know, is extremely experiential. You get down to, here's what I did, here's what I saw, here's what I heard, here's what resulted. And it also deals with it on the conceptual level as well. The Spirit in Action program, I do this one to try and help raise up voices that are leading to world healing. And so I think maybe I want to step back from your personal experience to say that overall question. I'm going to use the word should, which some people have reaction to, but why should we live out the deepest truth at our center? What effect would that have on the world? Why is it important to do this? Because some people just believe the most important thing is just obey your parents or live up to, you know, keep up with the Joneses or whatever. So how would this world be different if everybody was living the deepest truth they knew? That's a wonderful question. I think of it on two levels. And the first one is very personal. It seems to me that, and my experience has been definitely this, that my inner wisdom has come forward when I had a personal need for it to come forward. So there is a, a sense that as a first step in the answer to your question, I became healthier. I became more aligned with what I could also call my true self. I became less inclined to adopt a particular code of right and wrong of saying these are the things that are important and these are the reasons why they're important and you know i'm going to follow this particular leader in that regard i'm going to follow that particular leader in what they care about it became much more of my own sort of sense of healing and growth that became the window through which i engaged the world and with that in mind then when I, in my mid-30s, found a leading toward what I felt was a genuine calling to a particular mission and purpose in my life. And I would say that's probably the first time I genuinely felt that. It was to engage with the medical world around 
doctor-patient relationships and around the difficulties of communication between doctors and patients and how doctors often dismissed patients' concerns because they didn't fit the pattern of information that they needed in order to make a diagnosis and develop a treatment plan. But, you know, patients often felt, you know, sort of left by the side of the road and their bodies being taken care of, but their soul <laughs> and their self is not. So I felt a calling to engage with that world, to go back to graduate school, become a clinical health psychologist and work with medical patients and medical professionals around patient-centered medicine, around patient-centered medical interviewing, around research into doctors and patients and their interactions, around sort of a broader view of the medical world uh, as represented in the biopsychosocial model or biopsychosocial spiritual model as it has evolved to, and to have found a unique and personal place for myself in that particular calling. It allowed me to tap into my own resources in a deep way. It allowed me to grow in a way that I needed to continue to grow. Hey, what a surprise that trying to help the medical world become more compassionate would lead to me becoming more compassionate and understanding of others in my life. And to also feel like I had a place of connection with that mission and that purpose. It wasn't just following you know, the agenda of some social justice movement. It was my own path. And there were plenty of other people on that path who were interested in that. But finding it was my own deep journey and my own deep satisfaction in being able to do that. You recently retired from working as a psychologist, but your path had lots of hills and dales and wandering around to it. I wonder if the world would not be a better place if Al Belge were simply a soccer coach all of his life. I don't know. I mean, you, you wrote a book about that, evidently. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it. Uh, uh, you did some house painting. You, the world could use another poet. Maybe that's what you could have been. As it was, I think you came to a profession which is amazingly helpful for many people. That also means that you saw mental illness happening. And I sometimes fear that people who are mentally ill will follow their inner voices. Those inner voices can be very damaging. There's a, a man who's, I think, 20, 30 years younger than I am, who was part of a men's group I was part of. He was very good in some ways, but he had the issues. He did hear voices. And he eventually found out what he needed to do was be a literalist, fundamentalist Christian to keep this under control. That's what he felt like he needed to do. Mm -hmm. So those inner voices may or may not lead us to something helpful. But I think as a psychologist, you have a particular insight on this. You've grown. You've seen enough situations. You don't fear that people following their inner wisdom, deepest truth, will lead to more Hitlers? I think the people who are led to become uh, Hitler are not following their inner wisdom. They're not following their inner truth. They're following something quite different than that. I've not explored this very deeply yet. There's an option for another book, you know. Yes, indeed. And, and in fact, there is one in the works that is stirring in me. 
And I'm very much engaged with sort of the wondering of what that is and seeing how some of the pieces of it are coming together. I think there is a kind of a destination here. What if you really do succeed in setting aside the things that distract you from your inner wisdom? You aren't caught up in the rat race and trying to be successful, trying to make a lot of money. You're not consumed by addictions of all sorts to substances and to media and to ideas that charge you up and get you really excited about things that are right and things that are wrong. But you have a deeper acceptance of experience, a deeper acceptance of life and your own role in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, there's a a Buddhist sort of flavor to this. There's a kind of an opening to a kind of broader acceptance. But I think it's not so much just the detachment. It's very much engaged. It's very much loving. It's very much caring. It's involved in doing what you can for others and that you feel called to do for others. I think there is a a kindness and a compassion at the heart of inner wisdom that I trust very deeply. Well, I think maybe a little bit later, I want to come back to that topic of how the world looks different. I think we've addressed part of that, but I think there's more to be talked about. Again, you're a psychologist, or you have been recently a psychologist, but you're also a lifelong poet, I think. Very true, yes. Uh Is there one of your poems that might give people a flavor of part of this journey, where it's led you, how you got there? I would love to read a poem, and I think there's one that I think about that really reflects what you referred to. One of my activities in uh, Kansas City was working for a literary magazine called New Letters, which is still a wonderful little magazine. And in its beginnings, it had a calligrapher who was part of the concept of the magazine. And his name was Lloyd Reynolds. And in every issue, he would do calligraphy of one or two or three poems to bring his own art into the pages of the magazine. He was also a poet himself. This is a poem that I wrote after he died. He was pretty old when I was working for the magazine, and he died while I was there. So this is called uh, Lloyd Reynolds' Calligrapher in Memoriam. The final three lines that I'll read are uh, one of Lloyd's own haiku. Lloyd Reynolds' Calligrapher. It's not so much what exists. Pen strokes are the easy answers. In between is the pause, the white space, the inhalation that is everything we mean beyond words, the force behind words. Blizzard, it's white between the snowflakes. Folks, we're speaking today with Al Belge. Belge, by the way, is spelled B-E-L-L-G. I think it's out of Central Europe, right? (laughs) That is almost correct, yes. It's actually um, my Italian grandfather reconstructed his name when he immigrated to the United States after a rather horrific falling out with his family and his desire never to be found by them again. So he changed his name so he wouldn't be tracked down. (laughs) You can track him down, his writings, his practice, his thoughts, his connection at Albert belge.com, A-L-B-E-R-T-B-E-L-L-G 
com, And I've got that link on northernspiritradio.org so you don't have to memorize spelling so much. You'll connect with him. There's a number of things that he's doing, including amongst his, he's retired from his work as a psychologist, but he's still the retreat facilitator. And there's other practices that you may want to engage with him on. So albertbelge.com. Links to all my guests of the last 18 and a half years are on northernspiritradio.org. Connect with them for Song of the Soul of Her Spirit in Action and follow up. There's more. And one way that I really hope you'll follow up, make this a Christmas gift for me, if you will, is to post a comment on my site to the programs that you listen to. Because I love two-way communication, and it really feels important to me to know who's hearing me, what they're hearing. Because I'm not sure all my words are fruitful for everyone. I'm sure they're not for some people. But your feedback helps me be connected and to serve the common need. Because, again, the purpose of Northern Spirit Radio is to engage in world healing. And so your feedback will help me do that better. We're syndicated across the United States as well as podcast, but the some 35 stations, community radio stations nationwide that are carrying our program. So I say greetings to people out in California and to KPSQ, folks speaking to you from the public square, and I'm welcoming a new station in Tennessee just now. So please help us know you by giving your feedback. And please support those stations, and you can also support Northern Spirit Radio. We take money only from listeners. That is to say, we do not want to have what we broadcast be dictated by the needs of corporations or government. We want to listen to you and want to give that feedback. So please support us if you're able. And in any case, do support those local community radio stations. And please do your own work so that you are living the deepest truth you know. And that's why we have Al Belge here to talk about that. I want to talk about uh, soccer tactics. You didn't follow that path in life necessarily, but you talked about your friend, I think you had some connection with, I believe his name was Steve, who was in Milwaukee, but that wasn't your path. And you flailed around. I mean, you actually, to find your calling as a psychologist going into the second half of your 30s is considered late, and getting married in your 40s is a late thing. Is this because you thought a lot about it? You were left things open for a long time, or some people are just meant to be a rambling boy? That's sort of a good question, but I think the answer, again, turns me toward my inner wisdom. You know, there's that famous line, all who wander are not lost. You know, the external view of what I was up to in my life looks much more varied and disconnected than my inner experience of it. It seemed to me that I was moving and growing and learning on a fairly steep, you know, learning curve pretty much every step of the way. And the sort of leaps that I made from one city to another, from one you know way of making a living to another, one interest to another, there was a f- quite a bit of continuity in my inner experience of those things, even though, as I said, sometimes they were quite surprising to me. 
So, you know, I, I wouldn't have said that, let's say, becoming a, a clinical health psychologist with a focus on doctor-patient relationships was the sort of the logical next step after being a corporate business writer, you know, writing speeches and training programs for businesses headquartered in the Atlanta area. That looks from the outside like a huge leap. From the inside, it's a much smaller leap. It is a leap, mind you, but it is very much connected to what it felt like is and has been my own path through the world. I'm going to step back now to some of what you describe of your personal experience and living the deepest truth you know. I was a speech communications major, but I was also a computer science physics major and a math major when I was in college. So part of my life has been drawn very much to scientific method, to following things in an orderly way, if you will, or reining in some of my impulses enough so I can focus and get the thing to actually work. You know, that that's part of it. Some of your experiences certainly border on the mystical. And mind you, by the way, I've had my own mystical experiences, and I know they are true because I experienced them, and I won't necessarily be able to convey that to anyone else. But when something gets beyond the normal, as we conceive of it, some people just say, oh, that's woo-woo, and I don't want to have anything to do with that. So, for instance, you talk about visualizing an apartment that you are going to move into, or you had a vision of this apartment, and you're in town, you've got a few days, you got to find it. This didn't pan out, this didn't pan out, but I see this thing about the house. Talk about that situation, what it was and what you learned from it. Well, each of these sort of steps where I feel like my inner wisdom was coming forward had a learning experience in it, had a growth experience in it. And this one may be as big as as any I've ever experienced. So I felt led after about six years in Kansas City to move to Atlanta. And I had, again, as it had been with Kansas City, I'd never been to Atlanta, but something was calling me. I had grown to trust the impulse to do these kinds of things, but I thought, you know, I'll, I'll go and try to find a place to live. I'll spend, you know, three or four days, I'll find an apartment and explore the city a little bit, and then I'll move. Well, when I got there to Atlanta, I, first of all, loved what I was seeing. It was a beautiful city, but after a day or so of like just looking at you know apartments and apartment buildings and so on i thought i felt like this doesn't feel right yeah you know i'm like i'm not sure what is right really so it finally occurred to me to sort of ask myself or ask my inner wisdom well what should i be looking for and what happened was the most vivid vision that I've ever experienced in my life. It was a full frame, technicolor, widescreen view of a gray frame house sitting up on a little hill with a front porch that extended the width of the building and square wood pillars supporting it and two sets of stairs moving, going up to the house. And the downstairs of the house was entered from the middle of the porch, but there was off to the right side of the porch, there was a door that led up to the upstairs apartment, which was what was for rent and the apartment that I should be looking for. I eventually counted up all the details I was given here, and if, if and there were like over 20 details, very specific, like those I've just described, that said, this is the place, except there was no address. 
<laughs> there was, there's, you know, I'm like, there's no address, there's no phone number to call. There's, you know, it's like, okay, so what do I do now? Well, you know, it was like a test of faith. It was like saying the universe, my inner wisdom saying, well, okay, figure this one out. What do you think you need to do? Well, the logical brain in me said, well, maybe I should stop looking for apartment buildings and look for duplexes. Okay, so duplexes for rent. So I started confining my my interest to that. And maybe I should, you know, particularly where there's an address in the for rent ad, I should drive by because I'll know it when I see it. And so I spent a couple of days doing that, following up on duplex ads that looked promising and I would drive by them or I would call and, and arrange to, to go visit them and they weren't quite the right place. And after a couple of days, I was just like, Ugh, you know, I have one more day that I can be here in, in according to my schedule. And I have to be, you know, my plane leaves uh, Monday morning and it's Sunday. And I, well, now what do I do? So I decided to just say, well, I think I'll just get a good apartment of some sort. But it was a Sunday morning. And strangely enough, I was just I was like tired. I had had a pretty good night's sleep, but I was just felt tired. I went back and I took about an hour nap. And about 11 in the morning, I wake up and I'm a little woozy. And I, I go down to the ground floor of the hotel I'm in in downtown Atlanta. And I just go for a little walk to get some fresh air. And there's a free newspaper in the box there called Creative Loafing. It's just like, I don't know if it's still in publication, but it was a wonderful journal. And so I grabbed a copy of that, took it back up to my room. And sure enough, there was a little for rent section. And I checked off three possibilities there, went to the first one. And it was like, yeah, this is a very nice apartment. It's a kind of a triplex and it's sort of modern looking. And it, I think I could be okay here. And I called the number and, and the guy on the other end says, well, yeah, I, I can meet you there at three o'clock. Okay. I'm there at three o'clock. He's not there. So at 3.15, I call, no answer. 3.30, I call, no answer. 3.45, I call, and he says, I'm sorry, it's just been rented. So I'm going, I, gee, I don't know. Now what? So I, I looked at the other two ads that I checked off, and one of them was like, why did I check this off? This doesn't really even fit at all. But I, the, I called the other number, and there was a lady at the other end of the line, and she said, well, I'm, I'm kind of in a hurry right now. I have to run an errand. And I said, well, I'm kind of in a hurry too. Where are you? And it turned out she was like like four blocks away or something. So I, I said, I can be there in like two minutes, literally. And she said, well, okay, come on by. So I, I went on by and I pulled up and there was my gray frame house sitting on the hill with the stairs going up to the building. And it was like, this is it. This is my place. And I'm, I'm walking up into it like with this sense of like, oh, I'm gee, I'm so, uh, you know, I was just overwhelmed by this experience of finding this place. And so she, t she takes me to this uh, upstairs apartment. It's fine. It's quirky. It's like, uh, it's a seven room apartment that has only one bedroom. Go, go figure that out. But it was, it was very weird, but it was lovely. It was absolutely perfect. So I say, I'll take it. And she says, well, you know, somebody else, you know, was interested in it, but he said he needed to come back and look at it again. He's coming back at eight o'clock this evening. If he wants it, he gets it first dibs on it. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I'll, I'll give you a call at 815. And if he doesn't take it, I'll take it. And so 
I'm going like, should I keep looking? No, I found it. This must be the place. So about a half a block away from this apartment is a hardware store with a parking lot. And this is speaks to the time of <laughs> in my life. This was, there were, so a payphone in the parking lot of this hardware store. And I'm sitting in the parking lot and 8.15 ticks around and I'm staring at the payphone. And it's 8.16, 8.17. And I say, I have to call. So I call the number finally after so many feelings going on in me. And she says, well, it was the strangest thing. He kind of came through and he mumbled something and he disappeared. And I, I don't know what he was doing. If you want the apartment, it's yours. So I said, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. I was there. I signed the lease. And as I was leaving, somebody else came to the door who she'd contacted earlier to rent the apartment if I didn't want it. So it was a lesson in faith. It was a lesson in being willing to be persistent, to keep on looking until I found what I'd been guided to, even though it wasn't immediately handed to me. It was a kind of a learning of something I profoundly needed to know at that point in my life, that I could trust this inner process in a deep way. But I had to sort of push back past my own limitations and my own lack of trust to say, I'm simply going to keep going until I find what I've been given to find and stay the course. I'm sure that people listening can say, that must be made up somehow. How can you have a vision of the house you've never seen before? All of that kind of thing. There's elements of spirituality or magic or something that uh, there's actually an experience that my wife had when her mother died with her cousin and her aunt who are out in California, both when her mother died and when her father died, there's something that is inexplicable. And again, I've trained as physics. I've taught physics at university level. So part of my training is we don't believe in magic. You just, you write your pros and your cons, you do your double blind experiment and there it is. There's no way to do a double-blind experiment about which apartment you're going to be in. But having lived the experience, you know it's true. Mm -hmm. You know that there's something we have access to that's beyond that. And as I said, I've had my own mystical experiences. I'm married to my wife, largely because of one of them. And the two years after I first attended Quaker meeting, I went into a Quaker meeting and had a really deep experience the insight of which was we're living in a sea of love and we often get obsessed on a particular thing. But this was very practical. It was what was going on in my life right then. So I know the truth of these experiences, but it does raise up the question, is there some kind of opposition, conflict between science and spirituality? Were you raised religious? Yes, I was raised in the Lutheran church. My dad was a Catholic and my mother was a Unitarian and they somehow compromised on Lutheranism. So I was raised as a Lutheran and found myself even fairly young, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, sort of realizing I didn't really believe what I was being asked to believe or being asked to say. I would often stand silent and when others were reciting the Apostles' Creed, and I stayed with it until I couldn't any longer, which was when I was about 16, and in fact had just 
completed the confirmation. <laughs> you know, I was confirmed in the faith and then quit. <laughs> that was my experience, by the way, with my step siblings. I have three step siblings. They got confirmed and then stopped going to church. <laughs> Yeah, it's very similar. Although I wouldn't say that I stopped so much as I, I started opening the door to experiences that were more meaningful. I've had a number of different way stations on my spiritual journey, places that I've felt like the place for me to be. They've been very varied. I mean, the, the UUs, the Unity Group. I was even a member of a very left-wing Southern Baptist congregation for a while, which uh, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it was not in that particular case. I was part of the United Church of Christ for a time. And then Quakers, for me, is relatively recent, too. It's uh, within the last handful of years that I've been involved and engaged with Quakers. Evidently, you didn't stop in any of these places, but you may have rested or grown or learned something. Is okay. is there something that you particularly got that you could name a pro or a con that you got to each of your step? I had my own experience with UUs. I mean, I was raised Catholic, and I visited a number of different places the summer following graduation from high school, but met Quakers at that time, and Pretty soon, I was clearly more connected, more interested in Quakers than others. But I had a roommate who went to a UU church, and I went for two months there and found a whole lot of good, a whole lot I resonated with, a whole lot I respect, respected and do respect today. But then I very clearly had this vision of me sitting in a circle instead of facing the front that said, no, I got to go be sitting in Quaker circle. That's what I got to do. That led me in that direction. What about for you? What was the pros or cons? And I'm I'm not saying this like this is for everybody, of course, mm -hmm. but there's something that led you to keep moving along. And for all I know, Quakers are not your last stop. Maybe Baha'is next. Maybe you're going to become a Muslim next. I don't know. Well, I don't need to know because if such a thing happens, it'll happen. I'm open to it. But I think what drew me to each of those different faith organizations was clearly some positive things. You use, for instance, deep commitment to social justice issues and to trying to understand God and you know what spirituality might be. I think what led me away was feeling like, well, this is a little too much of the neck up. And I think I have more of a heart-centered spirituality that I need to respect and, and to explore. I think the Unity Church was another very positive thing. You know, the idea of creating your own sort of reality and that you have a lot of responsibility for the kinds of things you bring into the world and how you think and how you feel and the, the way that you treat others. And that was a real gift for me at the time to understand that. Eventually, though, what I think I came to was that, you know, it was a little too much you create your own reality, a little too much of the ego in, in charge, you know, trying to make things happen. I felt like there's a deeper wisdom, a deeper kind of guidance that's going on that I need to be open to and respect. So that led me away and led me more into the Quaker fold, I think, where that kind of respect for leadings and for the process of discernment, of you know, understanding that a leading is genuine and what might it might take to do that. I think that is very much in line with where I, I have been and where I am now. 
about 40 years ago, I was at a gathering at the home of a man who had been raised Quaker. His father was there, also Quaker. The man who was hosting this, he and his girlfriend were there. She was Unitarian, or UU. And someone raised the question, said, aren't Quakers and Unitarian pretty much the same thing? And my friend Dale said, well, yeah, kind of. You know, he just, he wasn't going to get into having a deep talk about it. But his father piped right up and he says, yeah, Quakers and Yous are pretty much the same thing, except Quakers believe in God. And I think there's, even though that's kind of a flippant comment he was making, it was a question about something beyond us, something beyond our thoughts. We're not just going to be able to reason it out. And so much about what you talk about, Al, in Living the Deepest Truth You Know is balancing how I look at what I'm looking at and how deeply I can look. And when you put something external or if you just put it in your head, whether it's in your heart, that's a path I've had to learn as well. Again, I'm a lot of ways I am very scientifically oriented and I respect and I value that deeply. And there's still something more that needs to inform that because my values don't come from mere facts. They come from something deeper, something beyond my thoughts. Yes, I love that characterization of it. I'm very scientific too, actually. I've always, you know, one of the radio programs that I was involved with when I was in Kansas City was something called uh, Thresholds of Science. I went around with a microphone and interviewed scientists about their research and did little features on the philosophy and history of science. And I've always been fascinated with science. And I was in my PhD program in psychology was very academically and scientifically oriented and research-based. And I have hauled in several NIH grants, you know, seven digits. And so I have a great deal of respect for science and a, a great deal actually of experience in doing science. What led me ultimately away from being a scientist was the sense that that way of knowing things and the kinds of things you can know through the scientific method and through the development and testing of different hypotheses about the way things work it wasn't really me. It wasn't the way that I was living and wasn't the way that I ultimately discovered what was most valuable to my own life. And in a, in a different lifetime, I might well have accepted the Stanford fellowship that I was offered. And I might well have pursued the tenure track that I was clearly on for a number of years uh, when I worked at Rush Medical Center in Chicago. But I felt like there was something else for me that had its heart very much in this experience of the deepest truth you know, and an opening to inner wisdom and a coming to understand it and practice it and to grow from it and to give from it as well, to connect with the world to make that my point of engagement with my life. You know, earlier when I asked you the question, Al, about how the world would be different if people were living the deepest truth they know, I think one of the things is people would feel welcomed. People would feel heard. And I think that drains out a lot of the stuff that comes out of fear or anger. I think the world becomes a more peaceful place and we work together. There's less of our energy goes into repairing broken bodies and minds, and more of it goes into 
making the whole world as rich of a deep loved place as possible. I think that's the way it works. I want just a couple more things. We haven't said a word about Parker Palmer, but a lot of ways I feel, Al, and again, folks, by the way, we're talking with Albert Belge, his website, Albert Belge, Belge is B-E-L-L-G, albertbelge.com, links on nordenspiritradio.org. Parker Palmer played a very important part in the fact that Northern Spirit Radio exists. Starting in 1999, I was trying to find what, out what I was going to be when I grew up. I already had my software company I'd been working at for 11 years at that point. And as much as I'm good at that kind of work, I wasn't where I needed to be. And so there ensued some years where this discernment went on. And in 2004, I read actually two of Parker Palmer's books, A Hidden Wholeness, Journey Toward an Undivided Life, and Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation. I read both of those right around that time. So there's something in me that was fed. And then my wife independently said, Mark, what you need is a clearness committee. And so I had a clearness committee, and so there was a confluence of things that led in 2005 to the formation of Northern Spirit Radio, thanks also there to WHYS Community Radio here, which started up right at that time. So invitations and insights coming from that. I understand those books of Parker Palmer and his Circles of Trust played a key element in who you have become. Oh, absolutely. As much as I have appreciated the experience of inner wisdom and the individual pursuit of following my deepest truth, I never thought of it as potentially having a group element to it. Even being a psychologist, I never thought that in an interaction with another person, you could somehow connect with or evoke that for someone else. And as I started writing my book, I finished the first draft of it. And as I was finishing the first draft of it, I encountered the exact same two books of Parker Palmer's that you just cited. And I realized that there was a group process. There was a way of interacting with each other that allowed our deepest truth to emerge, that allowed us to accept that and to evoke that and to encourage that in each other. And I thought, wow, I know what I've been doing, but I don't know what the possibilities are. So I actually ended up setting aside my book for probably six or eight years until I learned what I could learn from Parker Palmer and the Center for Courage and Renewal about this group process, which the Center for Courage and Renewal typically pursues in retreats, in offering retreats, weekend retreats for people to explore particular issues in their lives or to just explore what's what's up for them. And they use clearness committees. They use uh, what they call third things, which are sort of objects or processes in our lives that act as kind of a metaphor to evoke a deeper understanding or awareness of something that's important to us. And what I really treasured from that was this breadth of understanding. If you think about how the world might be different, it's not just that individuals might be different. It's that individuals might take on the role of helping each other be in touch with their inner wisdom and the deepest truth that they know. And that fulfillment would be not just an individual process, but a group endeavor 
that we are all engaged in with ourselves and with each other. I think that is just an extraordinary prospect, an extraordinary possibility. And I would say it is one of the things that engages me deeply with Quakers because I see Quakers often doing that. I'm involved in clerking a spiritual nurture group within our worship group. And that is so meaningful to me. Our growth together, our help and support for each other, deeply spiritual, deeply personal, and very much about us connecting with our deepest truth. One last question before we have to go here. And that is, I know that you moved to Kansas City. One of the things you wanted to find, you needed to find there was Tai Chi. Kansas City wasn't the obvious place to go for Tai Chi, but it immediately jumped into your life. Do you still practice Tai Chi? Occasionally, and not on the regular basis that I used to, but I actually ended up incorporating a very simple Tai Chi move in a stress-reducing meditation that I developed for my patients, my clients that I worked with, uh, the medical patients that I worked with, that simply involves moving your fingers gently in time with your breathing, letting your hands rise and fall in time with your breathing. And if you're very distracted and have a, you know, a hard time focusing on your breath, as many of the people that I tried to teach meditation to had difficulty with, by focusing on moving your hands exactly in sync with your breath, that cuts through a lot of those distractions and allows you to get the benefit of that slow rhythm that slows you down, that relieves stress, that, that gives you a deeper sense of yourself. Well, I'm afraid we have to leave it here, Al. I really do regret that. I do feel like you're a spiritual brother walking a path very close to mine. We're, there's just a year difference in our ages, and I have a feeling that we've both grown through walking up those patterns, following that deep inner wisdom, the deepest truth we know. And I'm so grateful that you're helping other people learn that because I really sincerely believe this world would be so, so much better if we could each live out that deepest truth. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. This has been wonderful. Again, we have a link to albelge.com. Belge again is B-E-L-L-G on northernspiritradio.org. Living the deepest truth you know. Get the book. It just came out this past year. and help yourself and others be on that deep path to a better world. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 